You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please feel free to contact us by visiting our website, harvestoakville.ca. It's good to be with you. Am I thrilled to see with my own eyes what the Lord is doing here? I've known George Sherman, one of your staff members, for a number of years. Uh, he and I like hanging out together. I noticed uh, Cliff and Craig could join our club. Uh, it's called the Fellowship of the Foreheads. It's a great group. Uh, some of you are members of that. And as godly as your wonderful pastor Robbie is, he's not a part of that club. I'm sorry, Robbie. Maybe one of these days. But uh, anyway, we used to use head and shoulders. Now it's just mop and glow and hit the road. Makes life very, very simple. Thank the Lord. This morning, I want to invite you to find your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. In just a moment, we'll be reading from chapter 3 and verse 18. Uh, Toward the end of our message, we're going to peek over into the next chapter and make some application, Uh, but it is a thrill to be with you. A number of you have been, as was mentioned, through a a small group study around my book called Transforming Prayer, and actually the message, uh, today's text, is really directly attached to that book, although I rarely actually preach on this text. I just felt the, the burden to do it today. Uh, in this context. But um, some of you will hear some things that are familiar uh, if you have been through that study because they're so much a part of my life. Reminds me of a a kind of a humorous illustration from our family. My father-in-law was a senior pastor for about 50 years, and then he became a senior adults pastor out in California uh, for a guy named John Maxwell. And then John moved on, and he went across town to David Jeremiah. So he's quite a prolific father-in-law. I was really blessed to have him. But for all of his strengths, he began to to, um, fail in his memory, and he would repeat himself very often. Uh, Some of you maybe live with someone like that. And he, he just would do it all the time. So we developed a system in our family that when he would say something that he had just said, and we'd already heard it, we went like this. That meant, Fred, we've heard this twice already. Uh, and so I remember one day we were at church, and it was way back during the Gulf War. Some of you remember that. And uh, we were in the car heading to the restaurant. He was sitting next to me. I was driving. He got all excited and punched me in the arm. He said, hey, 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 did I tell you that I was sitting next to a lady from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia today in church? And he had just told me that between services. And so I went over, and I just I looked, did that to him as we were driving along. And he looked at me and said, you mean there were two ladies from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, sitting in church today? <laughs> I said, forget it, Fred. You can't even remember the system, let alone the fact you repeat yourself all the time. So anyway, some of you have been through the small group study. You're welcome to do this at any point. Uh, peace to you as well, all right? January, as it has just ended, has typically been thought of as a month for new beginnings and change whether it's personal resolutions, a lot of churches do 21-day fast to kind of kickstart and spiritually rejuvenate themselves. And uh, we do that because we all are interested in changing. We don't want to stay stuck where we are. We want to continue to grow, whether it's financially, physically, spiritually, whatever the case is. And I know all of you here today want to change. Now, did you know there's someone who wants you to change for the better even more than you want to? Some of you guys say, yeah, it's my wife, right? Yeah, we, we know that. That reminds me of that old adage of, of the wedding. You know, there are three components of the wedding, the aisle, the altar, and the hymn. And as the wife's walking down the aisle, she's thinking that, I'll alter him, I'll alter him, right? There's that opportunity for change. But in reality, God wants you to change even more than you want to, and he has the power to produce that in us, and our responsibility is to respond to his overtures of love and his divine purposes, no matter what we're going through. Sometimes change is most powerful during the most difficult times of our lives. 
I've often said it this way, the worst of times are really the best of times, they just don't feel like it at the time, right? Somebody say, hey, that's how I explain what I'm feeling today, right? It, it's a tough time, but, but God is good, and he's always in the process of changing us, even though we may not sense it at the moment. As I think of my own journey and think of the worst of times, I specifically remember a time when I was a pastor, my first senior pastorate. Uh, it was in the area of the Bay Area of California, a church uh, that under the previous leader had grown from 60 to 6,000, and uh, God had used this man marvelously, but it was revealed that dating back eight years, he'd been in a, uh, involved in a year-long uh, extramarital affair. Uh, the church was involved in a $25 million lawsuit over a church discipline case, and a year to the date from his resignation, I arrived as the next senior pastor at the ripe age of 30, so uh, I was in for an adventure, as you might guess. It's been said that hurting people hurt others. And I always say that uh, those were my difficult years. I was there as long as he was. He was there 28 years. I was there four, but in dog years, it equaled 28, right? And some of you understand you're going through some dog years right now. Uh, we can all meet in the lobby and bark together, I guess, right? But uh, during those years, I wanted to quit the ministry. My wife would tell you we had already looked at some other careers. I was going to go make real money and just pay some other guy to do this job. And our elders helped us. They sent us away to a retreat center out of just the pain of, of what that experience was like. But the main thing that kept me in the fight was the fact that during those months, I was preaching through the book of 2 Corinthians. And just as a matter of broad context, this is a letter Paul wrote to what was admittedly his problem child church. And now he writes to them because false teachers have infiltrated the church and they are trying to make themselves look better by making Paul look bad. People do that, no surprise, right? Uh, they had accused him of being fickle and unreliable, it attacked his teaching, even his physical appearance. And so this is a book in which he has to open his heart, and as you read it, almost uncomfortably so, about what makes him tick, about what the nature of real ministry is in order to help them understand the credibility of his calling and his life. And at the core of this book, there's a section really from chapter 2, verse 14 into chapter 5, which has become my favorite. And then I would suggest to you at the core of that section is the verse we're going to look at today, which I believe defines the essence of not only Paul's ministry, the Christian life, and also gospel living. I call it the call to a transformed life. Let me read this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 18. Paul says this, and we all... With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Would you pray with me? So Lord, we ask that in your own faithfulness you would honor your word, honor your son, uh, that you would minister to your people, uh, that you would use a frail jar of clay so that the excellence of your power may be on display as we look at your word today, that you would arrest our attention, that you would draw our hearts, affect our wills, so that we will leave here as transformed people in that continual process of living our lives for the sake of the transformation of this society and world through the gospel of Jesus Christ, for whose glory we pray, amen. Now, as you look at this text today, I have to be honest, for many years, I thought this was a, a, a passage on Bible study. 
for a number of years, I was an associate pastor and personal assistant to a guy named John MacArthur, and this is his life's verse, and, and it was about Bible study, because for John, everything's about Bible study, right? So that's what I thought, and, and by the way, it doesn't exclude the Bible. The scriptures obviously transform our minds to make us into different people, but when this was written, uh, I think it's important to note there were no printed Bibles, so you could hear the Word of God, of course, and that was vital. Um, but ultimately, this is about pursuing Christ himself through the means that he has given to us to know him. And I think in the immediate context, it relates very specifically to prayer. Because Paul has been talking in chapter 3 about Moses' encounter with God as he went up to the mountain and experienced the presence of God and came down, and I call him glowing Moses. He was radiant with this sense of God's presence. And it was out of that experience of intimacy. In fact, the Bible describes Moses' prayer life in Exodus 33 as a man speaking face to face as someone speaks to their friend. And so I think it's not either or, I think it's really both and, but, but I think this is a vital passage to understand the reality of prayer as it ought to be, the experience that God has given to us to know him. I love to define prayer as intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes, intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes. And I believe this passage is really our call to know Christ, to experience transformation through the means of prayer. And I'm a big fan of what I call scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer. Uh, in fact, my kids say that'll be on my tombstone someday. I always say, I want this on my tombstone. My kids are complaining. They said, Dad, we can't afford that tombstone. You got too many little you know, adages and things you want on it. But scripture-fed a prayer that is fed by the Scripture, by the truth of God's Word, Spirit-led, and worship-based prayer. And you're going to see how we are going to unpack that out of this text today. A call to a transformed life. Four thoughts I want you to see. They all start with I because I went to seminary. Uh, as I said last night, at least it doesn't spell a word. That's really cheesy, you know. But uh, uh, four thoughts that I think will help you hang your thoughts on this passage. First of all, this call to a transformed life is inclusive. It is inclusive, both individually and corporately. Paul begins by saying now, as he's thinking about this new covenant God has made with us through Christ, so far superior than the old covenant, what Moses experienced now is our experience. And he says, and we all. And I believe that, first of all, makes it very clear that this is the privilege of every believer. I hope you're encouraged to know today that, that this means that not the pope, not the pastor, not the seminary professor, not the theologian are in the front of the line ahead of you. You have equal access to the wonder and privileges of knowing Christ just as anyone else does. We always say it this way, the ground's level at the foot of the cross, right? And we have the privilege of knowing and experiencing him as believers in Christ. When Christ died on the cross... The veil that separated sinful man from holy God was torn from top to bottom, initiating this relationship from heaven to our hearts that we might experience intimacy with God. But I would also say it is what I describe a corporate experience of prayer. And we don't realize that in our Western uh, ideology and worldview, we actually will look at passages of this and interpret them different than the original context. Gene Getz is a well-known professor from Dallas Seminary, and he writes about the subject of prayer, and he says in one of his books, I'm so grateful for all that has been written about private prayer and personal spirituality, but he asked the question, why have we neglected the primary New Testament emphasis on corporate prayer and corporate spiritual experience? He says, I believe the reason is that Western society is marked by rugged individualism. Say that with me. 
rugged individualism. He says, we have learned to think in terms of I, my, and me rather than we, our, and us. And as you look at what Paul is saying here, when he says we all, what we think is, well, this is a loose-knit collection of individuals all at home privately trying to figure this out on their own, right? What I think they understood is this is a close-knit family of people gathered experiencing this reality in community. And you understand that until the advent of the printing press, the only way to receive this truth was together. You ever thought about that? We're so used to having our own copy of Scripture, but the only way you receive this was together. And so not only does the original language argue toward this, but the very experience they had argued toward this. I think Paul's actually referring back to what they experienced under his leadership when he was among them and how Paul viewed church as it ought to be. We all are experiencing this. So, you know, I have the privilege of, of teaching on prayer and renewal quite often. It's been a major theme God has graciously built into my own life, my own pastoral ministry. And people will often ask, well, Daniel, which is more important, private prayer or corporate prayer? My answer is yes. <laughs> yes. It's like asking, which leg do you need to walk on more, your right leg or your left leg? But in our culture, we have primarily amputated our corporate prayer leg, and we are dysfunctional on our private prayer leg. And if we were honest, many of us in here struggle in our prayer lives. Getz goes on to say, actually, the personal experience of these dynamic realities of the Christian life are best learned out of corporate experience. So I've been here since Thursday, Thursday night, all day Friday, Saturday morning, I was leading what we call a prayer summit for the leadership at the People's Church down in Toronto. And, uh, you know, we show up at, at uh, 7 o'clock on Thursday night, and most of them, I know what they're thinking, they say, what in the world are we going to pray about for two and a half days, right? Uh, but we prayed out of the scripture, and we worshiped the Lord, and, and we sought him for who he is. It wasn't about a grocery list of problems. And all of us learned how to pray more effectively by praying. And I would suggest to you that uh, this month, February 18th, uh, that Wednesday night when the church gathers, you don't just come out of duty. You come to, to enjoy Christ, but to learn more about prayer as you pray with others who know how to pray. That's how we learn. And so I would encourage you to remember that. And when Paul gave those commands to pray, again, they were primarily received in community and thought of that way. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing, right? Or during allergy season, pray without sneezing, right? Or whatever version you want there. But you'll read that verse in your copy of the scripture, and I ask you, what's that verse mean? Almost instinctively, the first word out of our mouth will be I. I should always have an attitude of prayer. And by the way, you should, Right? But here's what the Thessalonians heard when that letter was written. They didn't stop by Kinko's and make copies for everybody. Uh, they, they heard this in community. And when the message came, pray without ceasing, here's what they heard. Y'all, it was Southern Thessalonica, y'all don't stop praying together. Now again, that almost makes our brain short circuit. It's so foreign to our culture. But that's how they understood that. I have the privilege uh, of teaching at Liberty University down in Virginia, an adjunct now as a part-time resident professor for a number of years. But there are a lot of students there from South Korea. And they will often come up to the Western students and ask them, why do you pray by yourself? <laughs> to them, it doesn't even make sense that you're trying to figure this out on your own. Say, said, join us at 5 a.m. every morning. We'll be in the prayer chapel praying. You can come learn to pray. And again, it's not either or, it's both and. But I want you to understand the privilege of transformation isn't just a solo experience. It is a communal experience. And so Paul is saying, we have the privilege Moses had, every one of us, but also all of us together. All right? So it's inclusive. Secondly, it's intimate. It's intimate. 
Notice this next phrase, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, if we went back into chapter 3, you'd find this idea of a veil mentioned twice. For one, Moses put a veil over his face when he came down from the mountain because his glory was fading. It's almost like a Muslim woman wears a burqa covering her face. And for him, it was almost the the embarrassment that this is not going to last forever. This is a fading reality. Paul then also says the unbelieving Jews have a veil over their face, a veil of unbelief. And in both cases now, the veil has been removed for us. This is not a fading glory. This is a present continuous experience. And the veil of unbelief has been removed so that now we have intimacy with Christ through his work on the cross. With unveiled face, beholding, beholding. That's the idea of a clear understanding and an intimate experience of something. Some of your translations will say beholding as in a mirror. And it depends on which manuscript you're working off of. But back in Paul's day, a mirror was a piece of polished metal. And not like our mirrors today. My wife has one of those eight times magnification mirrors. Some of you ladies have that. Made yourself all pretty today. And my wife will work diligently in front of that thing. You know, I walk by that and it looks like the craters of the moon have emerged on my nose. I just, it's not a good experience for me. Uh, But it wasn't quite like that. But Paul's saying as best as we can on this side of heaven... We are beholding Christ in intimate communion. Now, someday we will see him face to face, obviously. But he's referring to this intimacy of communion. And what are we beholding? Glad you asked. Look at what it says. We are beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, it's wonderful. That word's been used multiple times, I don't know if you noticed, in our worship, even talking about the youth camp experience and, and this sense of God's glory. Uh, in the Old Testament, the word is kabod, and I don't normally throw Hebrew out there, except you'd be familiar with ichabod. In other words, the glory has departed. What was it that departed? It was God's presence, wasn't it? Remember that? And in the New Testament, it's the word doxa, from which we get the word doxology. It is the idea of proclaiming the glory of God. And so really what Paul's referring to here is not just uh, coming and seeking God's help for our problems, although thankfully he helps us, but it's about coming and seeking him for who he is, seeking his presence. It's also a word that is used regarding his face, seeking Christ. Our family uh, spent most of our lives in California. We affectionately call it the land of fruits, nuts, and flakes. So, so we're a little bit strange, but we admit this. And, and, and there's one film that we have watched together more than any other film, and it's a very profound theological piece called Nacho Libre. Uh, it's about a Catholic friar who was in charge of the food at a Mexican orphanage, but he had a a secret dream to become a famous luchador, a wrestler. And so he was always maintaining this dream where where he would put on his stretchy pants and and he would go out at night and wrestle, but in the daytime he feeds the orphans, and it was really a challenge for him. But to really get the big money, he needed a a partner, a tag team member. So one night he, he, he accosts this skinny guy in the street who had been stealing the Lord's chips up to this point, right? And he wrestles him down and he says, Stephen, aren't you tired of getting dirt kicked in your face? Don't you want a taste of the glory? See what it tastes like. That's a cheap rendition. It's the best I can do, all right? And of course, uh, from there they go on and, and they win the money and feed the orphans and he gets the pretty nun and everything ends happily ever after, all right? You say, what's that have to do with prayer? Well, let's be honest. There are times when it comes to our prayer life where, I don't know about you, I get tired of getting dirt kicked in my face. I get tired of the enemy trying to oppose, distract, discourage, dissuade 
defeat me in my prayer life. And part of it's because of my own misunderstanding, and, and I want a taste of the glory. I want to see what it tastes like. And that's what Paul is saying. We can taste the glory. And this is, again, the idea of a worship-based approach to prayer. Uh, we're not just blowing into God's presence, presenting him a grocery list of needs so that he today will structure the universe according to my specifications for a happy and comfortable life, right? That's not what we're doing. We're coming into his presence to seek him for who he is. And one of my mentors, Peter Lord, says it this way, most Christians pray out of crisis or a grocery list, period. And there's so much more involved in this reality of prayer as Paul's talking about it here. So I'm going to illustrate this. I'm going to pick on another member of the fellowship of the four. What's your name? Eric. Eric, would you come up here? Just You don't even have to put your shoes on, man. We're in the holy holies here. You can, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I like you, man. You're my style. Here, hold this $20 bill. That's American money. It's probably worth 23 or something in your money. All right. So I come up to Eric and I just say, Eric, it's so good to see you. Thanks for sitting down front. I really appreciate you, brother, and all that you mean to the church and to the Lord and to me. And uh, no, yeah, keep it down here. And uh, man, I I love you, brother. I appreciate you. And you know, someday we're going to spend forever in heaven. And God bless you, brother. All right. So that's one. That's one scene. Scene two. I come up to Eric. Say, Eric, so good to see you, my friend. Thank you for being down front. Your hunger for God's word. Your spirit of worship. We're brothers together in Christ, and uh, what a joy to think that we're going to spend, he's crying here, it's so intimate, uh, we're going to spend eternity together forever in his presence. I sure love you, man. Thank you. God bless you. Amen. So he wants to give me my $20. That's right. So give Eric a big hand. God bless you, brother. And uh, so, <laughs> so you say, oh, that was kind of a simple little deal, but what was the point of that? It begs a question, doesn't it? Which one of those does your prayer life look like? Just coming into God's presence, all you care about is what he has in his hand. By the way, his hand is powerful, it is great, it provides. Are you coming into his presence to seek his face? And I've learned this over the years. If all you ever do is seek God's hand, you may miss his face. You can actually go through the routines of prayer just telling God what you need all your life and never really experience his face. But if you seek his face, he will be glad to open his hand. And by the way, just by way of biblical verification, this is the way Jesus told us to pray, isn't it? He said, pray this way. It wasn't a suggestion or a good idea. It was a command. Start with what? Our Father, say with me, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And your kingdom come, your will be done. It's all Godward, isn't it? And then it goes manward in the second part of that prayer. His face and then his hand. Intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes. So this is an intimate reality. Thirdly, it is inexhaustible. Notice the next phrase here as Paul continues to unpack this this essence of our Christian experience. He says this, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are being transformed. In the original language, that's what we call a a passive present tense. It's the idea that we are being acted upon by something, but it's always happening. And this is really the reality of of Christ working on us, in us, as we're going to see in a minute, and making us into something we haven't been before. Uh, The Greek word is the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. You're going from a caterpillar to a butterfly, as we think, right? You're, You're going from what you used to be into all that God desires you to be, and that is the power of prayer. I have the privilege of... uh, traveling and speaking fairly often, four or five times a year, with a guy named Jim Cimbala of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And 
We have the opportunity to serve pastors and encourage them. And I've been to the Brooklyn Tabernacle there in New York probably 20, 25 times. They have a prayer meeting, you may know, on Tuesday nights. Their whole ministry has risen around that. Uh, they have two to 3,000 who come every Tuesday, and they seek the Lord. They start with just passionate worship and prayer. And I say all that because I have never known a place that has more stories of transformation than these. Dramatic transformation. Why? Because that's what happens when we seek his face, right? That's what happens in the reality of prayer. The Lord is changing us into what? Into the same image. What image? The image of Jesus Christ. Again, God's purpose in prayer is not just to satisfy my desires for comfort or happiness, but it's to make me like Jesus, which is my ultimate longing in this life. And it's why he has left us here. But notice what he says, from one degree of glory to another. This is an inexhaustible reality of transformation and change. And I don't know about you, I haven't arrived yet. Uh, maybe you'd be here today say, you know, Henderson, I'm at my ideal weight. I'm in optimum health. I have perfect relationships. I'm completely consistent in my godliness. I'm clearly more spiritual and content than most of the people in this room. Uh, anybody say that? I didn't think so, right? There's room for change, isn't there? This transformation. This glory, from one level of glory to another. We've used that word quite a bit, even in our service today. Let me give you my, my definition of glory. And what this is all about is we, we kind of put a capstone on this thought. I describe it this way. It is the magnification of the person of Christ by his people. Think of what we did just in these recent moments. We have praised him. We have glorified him. We have made his name great. We have thought glorious thoughts about God. And that is his glory. The Bible talks about giving glory to the Lord or glorifying God. But then it's also the other side of the coin. It is the manifestation of the presence of Christ among his people. It is the sense that the living Christ is among us. And that's where the Bible talks about unbelievers coming into service and falling on their face and saying, truly, God is among you. And I know that's the desire of Pastor Robbie and the team here, that when you walk out of here, oh, yes, you've been grateful for the excellence and the music and all that, but you walk out of here saying, God was among us. And if you don't know Christ, you have this sense there is a living Savior in the midst of these people. I see it on their face. I sense it in their midst. And that is a compulsion to believe and to follow the Savior. So the magnification of the person of Christ by his people, the manifestation of the presence of Christ among his people, and we are being changed from glory to glory, our capacity to praise him, our desire to glorify him, the degree to which he is manifesting his life in our individual lives and in our midst, we are being transformed from glory to glory to glory. It just keeps getting better, doesn't it? And that's the wonder and beauty of prayer. So you say, wow, Henderson. Man, I thought prayer was just, you know, telling the Lord, you know, I had an ingrown toenail and I need a job, right? You kind of set the bar pretty high here today. Well, the Lord does set the bar high. And you say, well, I can't do that. And guess what? You're right. You can't. And that's why this last phrase is so important. I call it an internal reality of transformation. Notice what he says. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You can't pray like this. But he can, and he lives in you. And it is his desire working in you by his spirit to teach you to pray. Uh, that's why Paul said in Romans 8, you know, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Even the great apostle Paul, I don't know how to pray. 
But the Spirit works in me with groaning so deep, I can't even articulate it sometime. He's leading me to pray according to God's will. He's assuring me that everything is according to His purpose, and He's making me like Christ. Romans 8, verses 26 through 29. Uh, You may know us Americans uh, south of the border are a little excited about an event coming up tonight. Um, you know what that? You know about those here? No, I know you do. It's Super Bowl, right? In fact, if I could pull up my sweater, open my shirt, I would have a Seahawks logo on my T-shirt. Uh, Thirty-plus years as a die-hard fan, so I'm a little excited about tonight's game. But it reminds me of an illustration from the NFL about a guy named Michael Orr. There was a movie made about his life called The Blind Side, and he was a young man with extraordinary talent, but struggling because of his background with grades and trying to to, to kind of keep those at a level where he could advance his life. He was essentially adopted by the Tui family. Some of you remember the story. And in order to help him, they did something very, very important. Remember what it was? They got a tutor named Miss Sue. She relentlessly worked with Michael to get his grades up. And eventually, of course, he did. He went on to play college ball, pro ball, if you know the story. But as I think about that, I'm so very grateful that the Lord has not left us here to figure this out on our own when it comes to prayer. In fact, he's given us a tutor. But the tutor doesn't visit from 9 to 5. The tutor lives in us. It is the indwelling Spirit of God who is a 24-7 prayer tutor helping us to know the Lord, to understand the Word, to seek the face of Christ, to be changed by His power. Back in the... uh, Mid-90s, I was pastoring California, and we felt very prompted to do something somewhat radical, and that was to take our people away to a retreat center for what we called a prayer summit. I'd never led one of these before, uh, but we decided, let's do this. So from a Wednesday night to a Saturday noon, three and a half days, we were going to go up to this camp, and the only one we could get was the worst one that was available. I mean, we're kind of last minute, uh, and uh, we decided we're going to go up, we're just going to seek the Lord with no agenda. Now, that was not very Baptist. I was Baptist at the time, but it was biblical. So, you know, how are you going to do this without an agenda and long lists and all that stuff? We're just going to go seek the Lord. And I remember as we went up there, we had over 100 people sign up for that thing. Uh, And that was amazing. That's revival right there. Sleep on bad beds, eat crummy food, and do nothing but pray. That'll really sell, won't it, in the American culture? But they came. And I remember driving up to that retreat center thinking, Lord, what in the world have I gotten myself into? We got three and a half days. I don't. I don't have a plan. I don't have an agenda. We're just gonna start, and we did. And and we we began reading out of scripture spontaneously and singing songs and praying. And these themes would develop, and we'd pray around those themes, and we'd go off on our own for a while, come back together, get into groups, and and uh, I described it as the experience of grabbing my Bible boogie board and catching the Holy Ghost wave for three and a half days. I mean, it was amazing. But I tell you one thing, I learned is that when it comes to prayer, the Holy Spirit is the how-to. I often wonder, you know, why is it they prayed like they did in the early church and we struggle with it? It's because they actually believe the Holy Spirit is the how-to. Now, now I think the Holy Spirit helps me with my how-to. You you understand the difference? I mean, I have a smartphone in my pocket here, uh, and, you know, I download apps. Many of us think the Holy Spirit's like an app, right? We're going to download Him and use Him when we need Him to help us do what we need to do. But the reality is the Holy Spirit is the operating system. And what Paul is really saying here, it is the Spirit who does the work. He is the Spirit of prayer. He is the how-to. 
My problem, you know, I got too many other how-tos. You know, I can Google an answer in 10 seconds from some smart guy. Why should I pray for an hour, right? But the Holy Spirit is the how-to. And Paul's saying the Spirit is the operating system of this experience, and he's going to work in you to make this a reality in your life. This is the beauty of, of this new covenant Paul is talking about. God's presence is not shrouded on a mysterious mountain like it was with Moses. It's not hidden behind a veil in a temple like it was in the Old Testament. It's in you because of the power of the blood of Christ to cleanse your heart, to make you a brand new person, to come and live in you, and then to live his life out through you. Wow. And I would just say to some of you here this morning who don't know Christ, you so desperately need to come to that point to stop trying to be religious, to stop trying to figure it out, stop trying to get to heaven on your own merits and just receive the incredible gift of God through Jesus Christ, through repentance of sin and turning to him and allowing him to come and change you by his very life through forgiveness and transformation. At the end of the service today, there are prayer partners up here. would be glad to talk to you about that kind of relationship, pray with you about that kind of a need and what a wonderful thing it would be. I'm going to do something. I hope this is okay. I'm going to sing a song. My kids always tell me, don't sing in your sermons, Dad, but I'm going to do it anyway. Some of you would know, because I, I love just to, to apply this point. Some of you know an old song called Spirit of the Living God, Fall Afresh on Me. At least a few of you know it, but I'm going to change the words. Uh, because I don't think he's hiding in the rafters. He's going to jump down on us, all right? I, I think he lives in us, right? So Spirit of the Living God, work afresh in me. And let's just make, I love to sing because singing is corporate prayer put to notes. Uh, I know we're all not great singers. Some of you are what I call prison singers here. You're behind a few bars and can't find the right key, you know, but that's okay. All right. Uh, but let's just, let's just make this our prayer. Would you join me in doing that? Sing with me. Spirit of the living God, work afresh. Work afresh in me. Wow, keyboard, amen. Spirit of the living God, make this your cry. Work afresh in me. Melt me. Melt me, mold, mold me, fill me, use me, Spirit of the living God, fresh in me. So Lord, by your spirit, teach us to pray. Amen. As we close, let me just say these final thoughts. This transformation, practically, it works. It works. Because the chapter break wasn't in the original language. Paul says next, and I want you to see it, therefore, based on what I just said, seeing we have this ministry, what ministry, Paul? Preaching, serving in the children's area? No, those are all expressions of, but the ministry is this transformation. Seeing, therefore, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Wow. You know, this is a very discouraging world we live in, isn't it? 
And sometimes we define our ministry by how active we can be, how effective our efforts seem to be, how people respond when we reach out to them, whether or not we feel appreciated for our efforts, all superficial indicators. Paul says, because this is our ministry, we don't lose heart. It was D.L. Moody who said, I've never known God to use a discouraged person. And I like to define discouragement as a temporary loss of perspective. A temporary loss of perspective. Brothers and sisters, what we've really looked at today is ultimate perspective. You may be going through a a tragic time in your life. You may be facing terminal disease. You you may be heartbroken over things happening in your family with your children. All those are very, very real and can discourage us. But there is nothing that can stop the transforming power of beholding his glory and being transformed from glory to glory, even into the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when our sense of well-being and identity and joy is rooted in that reality because we have been so mercied by God, we do not lose heart. And that's the joy of a transformed life. In my book, Transforming Prayer, I close with this. I tell the story of a dad who was at home one evening reading the newspaper after a long day at work, trying to get a little bit of a break. And as he was reading, his young son came up to him, and it was still light outside. He said, Dad, Dad, let's go out and play. And of course, Dad normally loved that, but he was so tired. So he had a stroke of brilliance. In his newspaper, there was a, a page that had a huge picture of a globe of the earth suspended in space. And he took that out. He tore it into little pieces, gave it to his son. He said, son, go put this back together, tape it back together, and when you're done, we'll go out to play. He's thinking, I bought myself 15, 30 minutes, whatever, you know. Son comes back in five minutes, has it done. And dad said, I didn't know you knew geography that well. How did you do that? And the boy said, oh, it was really easy, dad. Because on the back of that piece of paper was a big image of a man's face. And so I just taped the face together and turned it over, and here it is, right? (laughs) And he made a statement to his dad, so powerful. He said, Dad, when I got the man right, I got the world right. And friends, that is the privilege of prayer. God is always in the process of getting the man right, getting the woman right. Because no matter what else is going on in the news and in the periphery of our life and the circumstances of our journey, seeing therefore we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. So Lord, encourage us. Encourage us in our wonderful privilege of knowing you through prayer, by your word, with the operating system of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that we're not what we used to be and praise you that we're not yet what we will be. But as we seek your face, you transform us and make us like your son so that we can be useful to your kingdom and see many, many lives transformed through your work in us and through us. For the sake of the gospel, for Christ's honor, we pray. And everyone said, amen.